Hey, just wanted to say welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. I'm lead pastor Noel Petegrass. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. You're welcome to join us Sundays at 10 a.m. in our historic building at 218 Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com. Thanks for giving us a listen. Last week we talked about uh, the, the prior passage about storing up our treasure in heaven. And uh, sometimes I'll leave like a Sunday morning and I'll regret, I should have said this. Um, or I don't know if I said that clear enough. And uh, today's passage and uh, today's passage is like really linked up with last week's passage. Um, so I really wanted to make sure that we got, got something. Uh, so I wanted to start by just kind of going back. You know, in last week's passage, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And uh, one of the things that I didn't really say that I really wanted to say is that our heart follows the things that we value. So one way to look at that passage, and I think like the main thing that I taught last week is that um, if we store up our treasures on eternal things, that that's where our heart will be, right? On eternal things. So in that way, um, storing up treasures reveals the intention of your heart, right? But I think there's another way to look at it, like a reciprocal way to look at, look at it, which is this, that even if your heart is not really feeling very set on eternal things, Jesus gives us a little practical step to help us set our heart on things that are eternal. Do you know what I'm saying? So if you don't, I just wanted to give the encouragement, like, man, maybe you don't feel like setting your heart on eternal things. Maybe you don't feel like giving. You don't feel like, you know, you know giving away your money. But in that act of doing so, like your heart will start to come along with you. Does that make sense? We used to say, fake it until you make it. Have you ever heard that phrase? And I think that it's kind of like that, even in this instance. So yeah, you know, what you give your money to, it does reveal your heart. But also practicing giving your money away can help take your heart somewhere that it's not currently at. Does that make sense? So I think it's a, it's a, there's a reciprocal way to look at it. And I just wanted to encourage you that yeah, we can give not because you feel like it, right? Although sometimes maybe you will feel like it. Sometimes maybe your heart's already there. But you could also store up your treasures uh, in heaven because you want to feel like it. Does that make sense? Sometimes your action leads to a heart condition, right? And then sometimes a heart condition leads to action. Both those things can be true. And I think that's what Jesus was saying to the rich uh, young ruler in chapter 19 of Matthew. What did he tell the rich young ruler who had done everything, right? The, the rich young ruler had lived the righteous life. He had done everything. And Jesus said, there's one thing you've not done. What did he tell the, the rich young ruler to do? Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You've done everything right, he said to the rich young ruler. But your wealth is your object of worship. And it's become an idol. And if you want to get rid of that idol, you should literally give away everything that you have. Jesus was giving him like a little step that he could take to get rid of his idol. Does that make sense? So anyway, I just wanted to, to highlight that. And, the, and one of the main reasons that I wanted to highlight that is because there is this connection between the passage that we were in last week 
and uh, the passage that we're studying today. Uh, and um, there's this word at the very beginning of today's passage uh, that, that gives us the hint that they're connected. Okay, uh, what is that word? Does anybody know what that word is? First word, verse 25. Therefore, right? Therefore, so uh, this is a little cue to tell you, or a little clue, I should say, a little clue to tell you that the things that Jesus is about to say are related to the thing he just said. This word tells us to, uh, to look above, right? See what I just taught you. Another way to say it would be, in light of what I've just said. So we know that there's this connection here. So we have to ask ourselves, so what did he just say? Right? What did he just say? So we need to read whatever's ahead in light of what was just said. All right, I think that's going to be really helpful for us today. So what he had just said was store up treasures in heaven, right? And, and as we learned last week, heavenly treasure is stable. It's not instable, right? It doesn't fade away. It doesn't rot. It doesn't rust. It doesn't get eaten by vermin, vermin right? Vermin? So, yes, like rodents. You know, that's what Jesus said in the passage. It lasts. It can be counted on. It's, so it's really smart to store up your treasure in something that's eternal because it stays. It's got staying power. So that's what Jesus taught last uh, week. Uh, now, uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, class, this week, what's the main thing? What's the, what's the main thing that Jesus is saying? Do not worry or do not be anxious. Okay? So in light of what we heard last week, store up your treasures in heaven, right? Do not worry, I think, relates to that idea of storing up treasures in heaven. Okay, so we've got to connect those two things. So the idea, the main idea today is that you can trust God for material provision. This is the big idea uh, this morning. You can trust God for material prov uh, provision. So if that's the what, <clears throat> um, don't worry about material things. That's the what. Uh, I wanted to, to say a little bit about what this passage is not. So this is what it is. And, and then here's a few things that I don't think it is, okay? Uh, the first thing I don't think this passage is, is a treatise on mental illness or anxiety in general. Um, and any of you or any of us that have had any sort of battle or known people with a battle uh, uh, related to, you know, any sort of clinical illness knows that uh, it's way more complicated than just don't worry. Mental illness is so much more complicated than just stop worrying, don't be anxious, you know. Um, I don't know that that's actually the, the most helpful advice for someone uh, battling a, a, this type of illness. So um, not that this passage doesn't have anything to say about mental illness or anxiety, but I don't think it has everything to say about mental illness or anxiety. So it's not a treatise on mental illness or anxiety. These aren't Jesus' last words. They're not his only words on the issue of anxiety, especially as it relates to clinical illness. The second thing that this passage isn't is an anti-aesthetic passage. Aesthetic, that's like a fancy word. What does aesthetic mean? Has to do with like how things look, right? It's, it has to do with like the beauty or, or, or visible stuff. And maybe you knew that there's been pockets of Christianity over time, right? Centuries past that, uh, rejected the aesthetic because maybe they thought that that's what Jesus taught, right? 
And I don't think that that's what this is. This is actually not an, an anti-aesthetic passage. How do we know that? Because in, um, in verse 28 and 29, look what he says. He says, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown in the fire tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you? Here's, here's the idea. Uh, these are all beautiful things that he's referring to, you know, and even he even refers to Solomon and his splendor, right? And we know the story of Solomon is certainly not perfect, but Solomon was known for wealth and probably beauty. Solomon's, you know, temple and his court was, was probably incredibly beautiful, um, so Jesus is not anti-aesthetic and we know that about nature, right? And, and Jesus is referring here to nature. And we know that one thing that the Psalms say about nature is that the heavens declare the, the glory of God, right? The earth is his handiwork. So Jesus is not anti-beauty. Uh, In fact, Jesus is the creator of beauty. This is not an anti-aesthetic passage. Uh, yes, he's the creator of basic things, but he's also the creator of beautiful things. Uh, lilies clothed in splendor, like Solomon, who's the wealthiest guy in the Bible. Uh, Jesus is into beauty. The Bible has a lot to say about beauty. Beauty is not a bad thing in and of itself. <clears throat> and uh, I, I don't know, like, I, I was happy to be reminded of how beautiful God is uh, today. Um, you know, God's not plain. He's not, like, just basic. He's beautiful. He's really beautiful. And so this is not an anti-aesthetic passage. Uh, everything God makes is beautiful. Um, and, and uh, you know, yeah, just like I said, I mean, it's all around us. We, like, get the opportunity to enjoy it. And I feel like, um, as an adult, that's something that I've come to appreciate more, that the creator that we worship is the one who made these really beautiful things. Like, God is beautiful. And so it's not inherently bad to have beautiful clothes, to have beautiful hair. It's not in inherently bad to have a beautiful house or for us to have a beautiful place of worship. Those aren't inherently bad. Um, but uh, the beauty of creation, the beauty of the things that we have, it should point us to the beauty of the Creator. So this is not an anti-aesthetic passage. It's also not an anti-provision or planning passage. We covered this a little bit like last week. So just because God says, or just because Jesus said, I'm sorry, don't worry, um, doesn't mean that planning ahead is a bad idea. It doesn't mean that saving or investing for the future is a bad idea. Last week, I used the example of Proverbs 6, which uh, praises how the ant stores up. Um, it, and then also Matthew 19, there's a, a, a famous parable of Jesus where he talks about wise investing, right? So um, these uses of our money, saving your money for a rainy day is not anti-biblical, okay? Um, and that's always something that we have to be reminded of, right? As we come to a really specific part of Scripture, one of the things that we want to get good at doing is using Scripture to help us understand what Scripture is saying, right? So as we zoom in super close, and I don't know if you've heard that phrase, uh, sometimes you miss the forest for the trees. And sometimes if we get really zoomed in close, like we're looking just at this one passage, if we're not careful, we'll miss the bigger stuff, right? The bigger message. So we want to use the entirety of Scripture to help us understand the small parts of Scripture, Okay, um, so anyway, Jesus is not anti-provision. He's anti-placing our hope in provision. He's anti-placing our hope in wealth and material things. Okay, 
Um, I had this question this week as it relates to this passage. Maybe this question occurs to you, but I was thinking to myself, I'm like, well, okay, like, this is, I think this passage, like, it makes sense to us because, like I told you last week, I mean, all of us are, like, really wealthy by the world's standards. Um, I think I told you, I, I quoted a stat that's probably, like, 10 years old by now, but if a if, uh, family income of, like, $30,000 um, and above puts you in the top 1% of the world's wealth. Isn't that crazy? So you guys, me, we're all the rich, right? We are wealthy. We're all very, very wealthy, even if it doesn't feel like it compared to one another. So sometimes we read a passage like this in our American context, and we're like, yeah, don't, don't worry about provision, you know? Because, like, I mean, which of us have ever gone like a day without eating unless we decided to fast? Like, we actually call that fasting, right? There's pe- Did you know there's people in parts of the world that call that like day to day, right? And they literally don't know where their next meal is coming from. In fact, maybe most of the world lives this way, you know? So how are we to read this? Like, it's like, oh, I get it. Yeah, Jesus talking to American me, it makes sense. Yeah, I shouldn't, I don't need to be that, wor- I'm worried about being rich, not real provision, you know? But that's not the context that Jesus is actually speaking into. Um, you know, um, like, and so he was speaking into a context where, like, literally people did have to worry about their next meal, maybe, right? They literally didn't have that much uh, in terms of clothing, even. They probably would have had, like, just minimal clothing, you know? So these people are, are taking this teaching probably a little different than we're taking it, you know? I mean, in some ways, they were probably thinking, well, what do you mean? Like, our whole lives, if, if I'm not concerned about what we're going to eat and what I'm going to wear, like, we literally won't wear anything or eat anything maybe next week, you know? Like, we don't have that much uh, surplus. Um, so we need to kind of put our, ourselves um, into that, like, place in, in the context of, of what, who's, and what and who Jesus is talking to. Um, and I, as I think about the world around us, many of whom don't have enough, um, you know, I don't really know, like, how to answer that concern, you know? I, I don't know, like, how to tell someone who's starving um, to read this passage completely. Um, so I think, though, uh, the thing that I do know is Jesus speaking to a context where there wasn't an abundance still said, don't worry. So what does that mean for me today, you know? How much more... Uh, can I embrace these words? Because he didn't shy away from saying, don't worry, even in that context. He wasn't scared of boasting about the Father's provision. Isn't that amazing? Like Jesus was speaking in a context where they, they literally, you know, probably were worried a little bit about how provision was going to be made for them. And he tells them in that context, don't worry, your Father will take care of you. Um, that's how much he trusted in the Father's provision. The second thing about this is... Um, um, the, uh, the passage does not instruct me to not worry about what others are going to eat or what others are going to wear. You get what I'm saying? So this, this passage isn't antisocial, it's anti-selfish. Jesus is saying, don't worry about your own self. It doesn't say, and this was kind of like a brain bomb for me uh, as I was preparing, um, it doesn't instruct me to avoid worrying about what others have and what others are going to eat and what others are going to wear and the provision of others. I think Jesus would actually instruct us to worry about what others are going to eat, what others are going to have and their provision. Does that make sense? And, and I just thought, man, what if we as followers of Jesus started to, to like really get worried about the needs of those around us? Do you know what I'm saying? What if 
instead of worrying about what kind of car I'm going to have, what kind of like designer jeans I'm going to wear or shoes or, you know, like my, what my house is going to look like, if I'm going to be able to keep up with the Joneses, what if I was really worried about my neighbor and his ability to eat tomorrow or my neighbor and the roof over his head, you know? I think if we started worrying more, we, sh we should. I think Jesus would say, worry about your neighbor. I think Jesus would say, worry about their provision. That's something you should get worried about. But in this passage, he's telling us, it's, you know, don't worry about your own provision. Anyway, so it's not antisocial. It's just anti-selfish. Uh, um, so that's kind of the what. It's, again, the, the big idea is this, uh, this idea that we're not to worry about material things. So why? Why do we want to not worry about material things? I think there's four things in this passage, and I put them on the screen hopefully to help you guys, uh, you know, to make it really stick. The first thing, uh, the first reason why I think Jesus is instructing uh, his followers not to worry is because worry doesn't work. Verse 27, he says, can anyone add a single hour to your life? And Jesus, I think he probably, I just, sometimes I, I just like sit, close my eyes and I think about Jesus teaching and I think the dude was so sarcastic, so like over the top at times in hyperbole. And he probably would have been, I find him to be funny, you know, but like, just think about it. Like literally, can you add an, an hour to your life by worrying, right? Like worrying does not help anything. Worrying not once has worrying ever uh, helped anything. Um, it's kind of funny that um, some translations uh, actually um, translate this phrase, can anyone add height, like add a cubit to their height, which is like a measurement, you know? Uh, so can anyone by worry actually add uh, any height to their, you know, stature? Um, so sorry, Noah, like worry is not going to help you get any taller, buddy. Um, but the, the bottom line is that worry is just unproductive. Worry, it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all uh, to worry. You can't add a day to your life uh, by worrying. It just does not work. It's also, worry is unnecessary as well, right? It's Why is it unnecessary for me to worry? Because God already knows what you need. And he's the one that provides. So not only does it not work, it's unnecessary. He already knows what we need. Um, and then um, also, like, there's an unworthiness to our worry, right? When we worry about physical things, in a sense, we, we're overvaluing those things. The things that God is really concerned about are like soul level things, right? And so in a sense, what Jesus is saying in this passage is that your worry about all these physical material possessions, it's just, it's not even like worthy. You should be worried about your soul. You should be worried about the condition of your heart. You should be worried about your righteousness, not what you're going to wear tomorrow, okay? And then, you know, last week we, we talked about how like uh, chasing after money, trying to have uh, financial stability, trying to have more possessions, it just doesn't really ever add up, right? You can never uh, catch that tail, so to speak. Um, in fact, the more you put value on material things, the more instability you're going to experience. Like you're going to be more aware of what you don't have. You're actually going to stretch yourself out the more you worry about provision. The more you want, the more you'll worry about having it. So this worry issue, uh, it just, it doesn't work. The second thing is worry isn't worship. 
So worry is opposed to worship. It's anti-faith. In verse uh, 31, Jesus says, you of little faith. It's a faith issue. When we worry, we lack faith in God's provision for us. it's, It's like we're not trusting him to provide. You worry about material things because you don't believe God can do it. In the next uh, section, he actually says that the pagans run after these things, right? He says, you have little faith. And then in verse 32, it's not up there anymore. He says, uh, the pagans run after these things. Who are the pagans? Well, the pagans are the ungodly. The pagans are the secular of, of Jesus' day. That was the word that he would use. You might have a translation that reads Gentiles. Basically, the non-Jews, the ones who don't know Yahweh, they're the ones that run after these things. So material worry, it's actually ungodly. It's idolatry. Just like storing up your treasures on earth is ungodly, worrying about material things is ungodly. It's idolatry. Worry is misplaced worship. Worry is what happens when you worship physical things instead of God. Worry is the enemy of worship. Worship says this. Worship says, you, God, have what I need. Worship says, you, God, are worthy of glory and praise. Worship says, you, God, are in control and can provide for me. But worry says the opposite. Worry says, there's not enough in you, God. Worry says, things other than you, God, are more deserving of my affection. Worry says, I may not make it unless I take control. So worry is the enemy of worship. I had a question for you uh, as I was thinking this week. Um, what keeps you up at night? I had, I had like one of those nights where I woke up in the middle of the night worried about something. And I wondered for you, what keeps you up at night? Uh, Monday night, I got kept up at night. I woke up in the middle of the night because uh, we're putting in a wood-burning stove and like the masonry behind it and like a, uh, a hearth and... I, we wanted to do like a concrete countertop for the hearth, you know, and the mason that we hired was like, no problem, but you guys will need to do that. I don't do that. So I was like, well, my neighbor can help me with that. So we did it. We had it all formed. My neighbor's really skilled. He helped me a, a, a lot. And uh, just before I went to bed, I noticed on one of the edges next to the form, it was like cracking, you know, and I was like, crap. You know, my neighbor was like, take the form off tomorrow. But that night I went to bed realizing that there was a crack and I was just so worried. I woke up in the middle of the night worried, what's, uh, what's my hearth going to look like when I take off those forms, you know? So what, what kept me up at night? Worry about like a material thing. You know what I'm saying? And so this revealed a lot to me about the things that are important to me and maybe in a way, uh, the things that I'm worshiping. See, your worry is connected to your worship. That thing that gets you up in the middle of the night, it's probably not your neighbor's dinner. I'm just guessing. And maybe some of you are, are holier than me and more righteous than I am, but there's my example of what, we, what woke me up on uh, Monday night. What does your worry say about your worship? Worry is the enemy of worship. I think that's one of the things that Jesus is teaching us here in this passage. Uh, The next thing, the third thing, the third reason why worry is bad is worry is a bad warden. All right, now I use, uh, what what are those called? Thesaurus? Is that, that's not a dinosaur. That's like a tool, like a dictionary kind of, right? 
So I got to find words that start with W here. So warden, what's a warden? What does a warden do? Is Reuben a warden? Is that his name? No, but they have wardens at his prison. I thought of Reuben. Anyway, a warden is like in charge, right? The, the, the warden's job is to like keep order and to protect, right? And uh, let me tell you, worry is a bad protector. Worry is a bad uh, caretaker. Worry is a bad warden. See, God can be trusted to provide because, as it says in verse 32, he knows what you need. God already knows what you need. You don't have to worry. He knows what you need. In our worry, uh, we actually act as if we know best. That's actually what I was doing in the middle of the night. You know, I was worried because I knew, I'm like, I need to be happy and have this perfect looking like piece of furniture in my home. You know what I'm saying? We act as if we know best. We act as if uh, we can best provide for ourselves. But that's not true. It says, verse 32, he already knows what we need. So worry is a really bad caretaker, a really bad warden. Listen, God is a better God than you are. He is. He's better at being God than you are. He's better at being God than I am. And this is why I don't have to worry. Because he's way better at being God than I am. But man, when I'm waking up in the middle of the night, worrying about things like that, one of the things I'm doing is trying to be a better God than him. Not trusting that he's a better warden than I am. The last thing is that worry doesn't prevent woes. Ah, I love it when there's a good W word to uh, help me out. Woes. In verse 34, Jesus says that each day has enough trouble of its own, right? It's not that, I mean, I think part of what he's saying is like, I get it. It's not that there's nothing to worry about, you know, like (laughs) there's trouble. Each day has its own trouble. Don't worry about tomorrow's trouble because you're like, you've got all you can take today. It's like be in the moment, you know. Um, And I, we got to notice something because sometimes we have this belief system that if we give our lives to God, if we do everything that Jesus asks us to do, that nothing will ever get hard. But is that what the Bible teaches us? And you've probably heard of this like prosperity gospel, right? That's like a, a thing that's out there, like, like maybe like a false message that if you give your life to God, everything will be perfect. You're going to get rich. You're going to have a great life. You'll never get sick, right? But that's not true. In fact, every day has its own set of trouble. And Jesus knew that. And so he kind of offers that like, look, there will be trouble. There's woes that will come today. Worry about today's woes, you know? Don't get all anxious about tomorrow's woes. Um, you know, there's a, uh, a great theologian uh, that said, um, don't worry because everything is going to be all right. Don't worry about a thing, right? Because every little thing, right? You guys know that song. You should sing with me, right? Bob Marley, right? The great theologian Bob Marley. He said, don't worry about a thing because everything's going to be all right. Well, Bob Marley, it's not true right? Each day has enough trouble uh, of its own. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Maybe you can remember, and I know this might be hard to imagine, but Jesus, he never saw the Lion King, right? This is not a Hakuna Matata passage, right? What's the Hakuna Matata, such a wonderful phrase? It means no worries for the rest of your days. This is not what Jesus is teaching in this passage, Hakuna Matata, it's a bunch of BS, right? There's, there's woes, 
But every day's woes are enough for themselves. Stay in the moment. Don't worry about tomorrow's woes is what Jesus is saying. So he's not even saying like, uh, yeah, he, he's not saying no worries. I just want to make that point clear. Like he's not saying like, hey, everything's going to be all right. Because sometimes it's not going to be all right. You know, and we've all, we, heck, we, that's why we have prayer requests, right? Because not everything is all right all the time. So he's not saying no worries. He's saying don't worry, right? And uh, I I found this really helpful. You know, some commentators um, have called this a command. The command, like don't worry. They've called that a a command of Jesus. Uh, Other uh, commentators have called it a comfort. Like, hey, you don't have to worry, you know? And I think it's actually probably both. I think, uh, I think maybe a better way to say it would be, you can quit worrying. Like, you can quit worrying, you know? Like, there's some comfort in that, and there's some command in that. It's both. It's a command, and it's like a word of comfort. Uh, and, and why is it a word of comfort? Because you have a good Father in heaven who provides even for the birds and the lilies, and He knows what you need before you even ask. So in this way, Jesus is teaching that life lived in the moment is freedom from worry. All right, so worry doesn't prevent woes. Um, Man, sometimes uh, this stuff gets caught like up in the clouds. And it's like, I don't know if you're ever sitting there thinking, I just imagine that maybe you're sitting there thinking like, okay, this is great, Noel, you've done a great job convince, or maybe maybe you never think that. but, but, But maybe, just maybe you're sitting there thinking like, Wow, great job, Noel. You've, uh, you've convinced us why uh, we, we don't have to worry. But how? Like, how? You know what I'm saying? I mean, how many of you worried, like, already today? You know what I'm saying? Um, it's like, it feels insurmountable at times. And so, um, I am going to end uh, trying to help us understand how we can live a life uh, free from worry. I think that Jesus uh, teaches us that for sure in this passage. Um, so, uh, how do we do this? Um, I actually think um, while it's easier said than done, I think that we have some really practical steps in this passage that we can take. Um, See, Jesus actually, he goes to math uh, for the answer to this question. Um, And I know many of you thought that math is of the evil one, but I'm here to say this morning that Jesus does math, evidently. Um, And some may still disagree. But anyway, uh, on the next slide, I have the equation. So verse 33, Jesus says what? He says, um, seek first his kingdom, right? Seek first his kingdom. If I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that's the math equation to peace or to freedom from worry. When I place my kingdom ahead of his kingdom, that's the opposite. Worry is the result, right? My kingdom, my righteousness leads to more worry. But his kingdom and his righteousness leads to freedom uh, from uh, worry. Uh, see, our first priority as Christians is not our own ambition. It's not our own material wealth or status or possession. It's his ambition. That's our first priority as Christians is his ambition. Um, And we really have two choices. We can seek our own ambition or we can seek his. There's no third option. You can make yourself God or you can let him be God. You get to choose, right? And if you prioritize his kingdom and his righteousness, you get freedom from worry. <clears throat> there are some things that we can do, right? To, uh, to take this idea out of the clouds and put like actual action to it. 
You know, and, and sometimes we uh, de-emphasize Christian disciplines um, because we know that these disciplines don't save us, right? No amount of prayer or Bible reading, solitude, fasting, you know, singing, no amount of this can make you right before God. That's a gift of, of grace. But these things can help you seek first his kingdom, right? So I just wanted to offer those as some examples, you know, some, some examples of Christian disciplines that can help you seek first his kingdom. You know, what does your prayer life look like? How is your prayer life demonstrating uh, that you're seeking first his kingdom? When's the last time you fasted or went without as an, a spiritual like, act of self-discipline and identifying with Christ through sacrifice? Have, when's the last time you were in silence before God? When's the last time you got away, like Jesus did, to be with the Father? Uh, when's the, you know, how's the Bible meditation or the Bible reading going? Um, these are some ways that we can seek first his kingdom. Again, these aren't, these aren't things that make you right before God. You can't do enough. The, the pile is too high. You cannot do enough to be made right before God. But these are some things that you can do to seek first his kingdom. Right? And I, I love this because these are, it's like a, there's like a motivation of your heart in the seeking, right? That drives these acts of obedience, these little steps. It reminds me of the phrase, uh, maybe you've heard this, uh, I think it's like a proverb, uh, like when the student is ready, the teacher arrives, right? And I think one of the things that I mean by that is just that the methods will come when the motivation arrives. Um, but seek first his kingdom. You know, and how does this relate to the idea of where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is your treasure in the kingdom of God? Is that where you're storing up treasure? Or is your treasure in your own kingdom, right? Remember, we really only get two choices, God's kingdom or my kingdom, his ambition or mine. So I want to just conclude this morning by reminding us of this comforting command that you can quit worrying about your life. And how are we going to do it? I mean, we're going to have to take some little steps, some like little steps of discipline, right? To help us seek first his kingdom. Um, I actually have an idea uh, that I wanted to uh, invite you into. Um, we're, uh, we're coming up on the season of Lent, uh, you know, and, and the Catholic Church is like, really big on a tradition like, like Lent, but it doesn't mean that it's not for us as Protestants. Uh, in fact, I think Lent can be a really meaningful way to kind of extend the Easter season and helping us to really like get into it, right? Um, as we have kids banging on the windows outside. Um, so I got an idea for this Lent season, uh, Ash Wednesday. So the beginning of, of uh, Lent is actually this Wednesday of this week. Um, has anybody uh, ever given up anything for Lent? Like that's kind of, that's one of the traditions in the Christian faith is like to give up something to go without. Uh, we, we went to a Christian college, little Lent joke here. We went to a Christian college. So a lot of us kids were trying to be like overly righteous, you know, in, in, in college. And like I dated a girl at one point very briefly before Megan completely caught my heart. And she gave up, she gave up looking in the mirror for Lent. That's what she gave up uh, for Lent. It was her way of giving up vanity. But anyway, you don't have to be that complicated, okay? You don't have to be that complicated. You could just go like old school, give up, you know, food or like maybe a treat. Maybe you could give up sugar. Anyway, you might decide to give up something personally for Lent. And I encourage you to do that if you want to give up something personally. It can be a really good way to identify with Jesus and his sacrifice. Um, 
But I wanted to call us as a church to Friday fasts. And here's the idea. I'm going to make it relatively simple. Because uh, I know, you know, food's really important to me. And I can only imagine some of you are like, if you make me do a juice fast for 40 days, like, I'm going to be hangry for a long time. Um, so what, what I thought we could do is just like, just, again, just like a small step of obedience, right? Just like a little discipline that's going to help us seek first his kingdom. I thought we could call a fast on Fridays from lunch. And I wanted to invite you to join me in that. And if you can and if you're able, because one of the things about fasting is that often when we fast, if we can uh, replace the time and energy that we would have spent on food with something like a spiritual discipline like prayer, um, it can really help, you know, kind of maximize what's going on for us in the fast. And so um, I wanted to uh, invite you to join us from 1245 to 115 on Fridays uh, up, leading up to Easter. Okay, and again, I don't know if everybody can make it. If you can't get here physically, though, you could still be here spiritually on your own, wherever you are. Uh, why 12.45 to 1.15? I know that's a really late lunch. That's my lunch. So, so anyway, that's why it's 12.45 to 1.15. But I, I wanted you guys to, I wanted just to invite you to fast with me. Uh, I think Megan's on board. So fast with us. Yeah, and if, yeah, so you're totally welcome. Like I, I encourage you to your own personal fast. If you feel like the Lord's inviting you into uh, your own personal fast, I, I would totally invite you uh, or encourage you, I should say, to do that as well. But I wanted to do something together, you know. Uh, Megan made a comment yesterday after the women's retreat how um, it was, it's easier to, uh, to do something hard when you know that you're doing it with friends. You know what I mean? Um, I used to be a personal trainer, right? And I remember one time one of my clients was like, I would never do this if I was alone. You know what I mean? And it's so true. We don't do the hard things on our own. So I was just wondering if you guys would join me uh, in this fast, uh, giving up lunch on Fridays. And, and if you're able to come here and pray, um, I don't know, pray for what? We'll have plenty to pray about, I'm sure. Um, but I think it would be a great thing for us to do together, build unity in our body and uh, learn to go without a little bit. So I wanted, to, I, I wanted to just like give us this little idea. How can we seek first his kingdom? Well, I don't have all the answers. I got some suggestions. Here's one little practical step that we could take by giving up lunch on Fridays during this season um, and really seek first his kingdom. We're going to, uh, we're going to end with a song. Um, and uh, as we sing, you guys uh, are invited to come forward uh, to receive uh, communion. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought just especially today as we come forward to receive communion, and I know, you know, as we're preparing our hearts to come receive, uh, a lot of times there's like an investigation of our hearts, like searching our hearts to see what God reveals, uh, what about maybe what shouldn't be there. Um, but I thought, you know, communion is like in a way a really uh, precise picture of God's provision for us, you know. And we often think of provision in, in the physical sense, but uh, spiritually, our provision is, uh, is spelled out or pictured in no better way than Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. And so as we come to the table, that's what we're remembering. We're, remember that, we're remembering that God provided the ultimate way for us to be reconciled to him. So that even it, while we were sinners... He died for us to make a way for us to have relationship with his Father forever. And that's what we celebrate as we come to the table. So we can even remember the way that he's provided for us uh, by his body and his blood.